Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. And one of the things we've been talking about a lot in the Ghostly Talk mansion here is Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and NFT. And I know last week I just looked at you and said, what the hell are NFTs? I don't get this. I don't understand it. I don't even get the word like non-fungible. It sounds so fungible. fake. Like how often do you use fungible. the word fungible in Fung- the English fungible. language? Fungible. Fungible. Well, and I. So. Yeah. I'm, then you were like, I don't know. It's just well, I had, an I, I had an idea. Well, but it, I, 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 but I, it was something that, you know, I, I understand the very basic of it. And I, I did do a little bit of a deep dive last week. Yeah. So then you came reading. back from the gym, put your stuff down and went, I got some stuff to tell you. Because you would listen to some podcast or whatever yeah, while you well, were at the gym. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, it's not going to last. This thing is just like the internet explosion of the 90s and the websites that just, you know, the, the startups and the well, dot coms. At, at risk of sounding, I, 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 I'm all about a new venture. I'm sure. all about new ideas. I, I also know that I'm getting older and I do have to be more dynamic and and. It's very easy when you get older to get, be very set in your what, ways. What's this new frangler What's this technology? New exactly. And I have to say that this is the first time in technology world with technology world. Technology world with Welcome to Technology World. I am Scott, your host. <laughs> with yeah, that would be you. That'd be a lame podcast. Welcome to Technology World. So there. What would be lame about that? I know technology. You do, but I don't know if it'd be a great podcast. I am super technology boy. That's no. that. Uh, that's. Welcome to Technology World with your host, Super Technology Boy. Stop. Scott. Stop. Scott, the Super Technology Boy. So this is the first time that I have literally felt old when it came to something (laughs) new in technology. You know, cell phones come out and you're like, this is what I always dreamed of. And (laughs) everything else. Like, I I don't, I, I get it. Oh, get this app, do this, whatever. Start doing banking online. Everything just moves online. Great. Easy. Smooth transition. Then you start hearing about cryptocurrencies and blockchain and Ethereum and, yeah, these non-fungible tokens that 20-year-olds are making millions on selling, like, pictures of two colors. And I'm like, what what, what am I missing out on? Well, am yeah. I missing out like on something? It, was it, uh, Why don't FOMO, I get this? FOMO. That's another young person. FOMO. What is that? Fear of missing out. FOMO. I've never heard oh, that. Oh, no, no. I've heard that's an acronym? That's a FOMO. So like YOLO, people, YOLO. Say, people yeah. say FOMO. FOMO, FOMO. Okay, I've heard the well. FOMO thing. That, then that's what I this is that. too. We're both in the world okay. of FOMO right okay. now. Okay, fear of missing out. So we go to work and just make money manually, apparently. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I just, so when we got a request to have our guest on tonight, talk, I was inter- Ethan, I was, yeah. Ethan Liu, yeah. who wrote a book once a Bitcoin miner, yeah, yeah. we thought, well, let's step out of our normal realm of the supernatural and the weird because let's just face it, the cryptocurrency world is weird and is almost a little mysterious in its own way because well, it we, is. not everyone understands it, which is why why we're sitting here having this conversation. Like, what the hell is There's it? There's so much out there. And that's the thing about the internet and going into things like the dark web, the dark web, the dark web. Uh, or most notably cryptocurrency. Uh, So, you know, Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency and uh, there's thousands of different cryptocurrencies out there now, um, just so people know that. But that's the point of this is it's, I think for a lot of people, it is a mystery. It's different. It's foreign. And most of all, it's scary because I think some people see a change coming going, well, wait a minute, I, I don't even understand this. And, and I'm being told by some people that yeah. this is what my money's going to be someday right. is in these these 
bitcoins that I have to have a bitcoin wallet. Well, and I have to have all this stuff now that I don't know what the hell it's. I have a wallet. I have a regular wallet. I like what Ethan says at the end of the show that cryptocurrency he doesn't see it overtaking our current monetary system yeah but that it's something that will be running alongside it'll just be another system that you can use and and it does have its advantages as you'll hear in the show so we um kind of like just uh briefly go over a little bit of the highlights and stuff that ethan wrote about in his journey uh through bitcoin Bitcoin and he did it i mean he's he was you know and that's one of the things we he did it all. He worked all of the facets of this thing. I mean, he did the business end of it. He worked on the actual mining end of it. Uh, he's an investor himself. So he's, you know, throughout his journey of this thing that he talks about in the book, um, he's done all of it. And if there's anything in the show where you're like, what are they talking about? Like, and you want to know more about it, read, pick up the book because it really is. It's a, a cool book. It's creative nonfiction. And so it's very well written. It's yeah. easy to read. Especially, for, especially for a technical topic, you know, it's it's kind yeah. of tricky to write stuff like about this and have it be interesting. Ethan Liu writes widely, including a cryptocurrency column for the Financial Post. He first bought Bitcoin in 2013. Liu's debut book, Field Notes from the Pandemic, has received national accolades. Liu is a former Reuters reporter and has served as a visiting journalist at the University of British Columbia. Ethan's latest book, Once a Bitcoin Miner, Scandal and Turmoil in the Cryptocurrency Wild West, details his quest through the proverbial cryptocurrency continuum through riches, absurdity, wonder, and woe. Please enjoy our conversation with Ethan Liu. something i've been looking out for and kind of watching out there and well let's just put it this way the internet is decades old now mm-hmm. and with that i you know it's fun stuff that i really want to get more into i think with this show down the road is you know internet lore and and stuff like that because there's there's lots of stuff out there like these weird myths and mysteries and all kinds of crazy stuff that's happened out on the greater internet now it's a you know if it's, it's its own environment it's its own ecosystem and with that comes crazy stuff, right? Now, right. that point aside, there's other things out there that I think people in greater community, like, like the paranormal community like that we kind of care to, I guess, uh, you know, I think there's stuff out there that people find to be mysterious also. Yeah. And one of those things is, is well, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. The cryptocurrency yeah. is the greater thing of that, right? Um I personally have been familiar with it for a number of years. I've been confused by it for a number of years. <laughs> uh, but you know, and, but even with that, it's my experience with it is just on an upper level, right? Uh, and I think a lot of people find cryptocurrency itself to be this kind of weird, mysterious thing that's that's kind of scary too. You know, you're talking about people's money, basically, or people's what people sustain themselves with. Um, so I think you know 
when we had a chance to talk to the gentleman we're going to be talking to in a few minutes, which I'm really excited to be doing, uh, that's what I kept in mind here. I'm like, you know, this is a, a mystery, of, just like anything we talk about, I think, yeah. on this show. And I think it's something that I really want to get into more going forward with the, with the show, too. Um, so we're talking tonight, and I want to say right off the bat here, Ethan, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking some time to talk to us uh, about your new book, uh, Once a Bitcoin Miner. Uh, I just want to thank you a million times over for taking some time to talk to us. How are you tonight, Ethan? I am well. Uh, thank you for having me, Scott and Amber. Uh, very, uh, very happy to be here. Cool. Excellent. Now, um, again, we're talking about the book, as I said, Once a Bitcoin Miner. You know, and as I said, our main audience, is, they, they are into the paranormal, the strange and unexplained. Um, what I want to do, if we can, if you care to just give us a few minutes to talk about this, is can we just talk about what cryptocurrency kind of is from a philosophical level, uh, I guess, and, and maybe we'll talk about the more technical stuff, not technical, like really deep technical stuff, but I guess let's get an idea of oh, what yeah. like cryptocurrency yeah. is and Bitcoin is for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency, and it's basically a way to transfer units of the currency between people without going through a third party. So uh, use it's user to user. If I send you a Bitcoin, it goes like, uh, essentially directly from me to you. Whereas if you were to buy something with your credit card over the internet, it might look instantaneous, but it goes through lots of pipes, lots of big companies to process that payment. Yes. And Bitcoin, it just cuts out all of the intermediaries. And uh, from there, crypto, which is basically uh, other coins, there are thousands of other coins now, and uh, lots of people trying to do different things with that technology. Mm-hmm. I know when you say person to person, that has to do with blockchain, I think. Which you, what, I think one of the main points you just made, from what I understand too, you're right. If I go and buy a pizza somewhere real quick uh, and I use my credit card to buy the pizza, it's a simple transaction that I do that seems pretty seamless. But we both know, yeah, there's a lot of nuts and bolts and a lot of infrastructure behind that to move that $5 or whatever for a pizza from my credit card account or my debit account to who, the pizza maker's account, right? Whereas Bitcoin, we're talking about blockchain, I guess, right? Where that, That's where we get the, the more person-to-person thing, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so blockchain is the, te- is the technology behind Bitcoin, and it's uh, what enables this person-to-person thing to happen. Now, I guess the, 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 on a philosophical level, from what, and I mean, I could be wrong on this. Please tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency was kind of born out of the recession in 2008. Am I correct on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the recession, lots of things spiraled forth from that. And one of that is the, the distrust of big banks, because uh, why did the, the recession happen? Because the big banks, they gambled too much with, uh, with people's savings and lives. And ultimately, I think in the view of lots of people, Justice wasn't done because when the big banks, when they also suffered from the recession, they got bailed out. And uh, Bitcoin, I think it's basically like a, just a giant middle finger to that. <laughs> no, and that's really, I agree. That, that's yeah. from what I understand, that's what it was. And I think that's why I say philosophically, I, 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 I'm, I'm with this movement. Um, go ahead, Amber. Is it still a mystery who who initially created Bitcoin? I thought I once heard that it was like we don't know who did it. Is that true or untrue? Um, it, it, I think I might I might be creating a double negative here, but it's uh, 
it's true that we don't know who did it. And there is a guy who goes around claiming that he is the one who created it. His name is Craig Wright. And so far, he has produced zero proof. And if he is actually the creator, it's very easy to provide the proof. And that's why nobody believes him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to ask a, a, a question inside of that, I'm just curious, Ethan. How could he provide proof? In the event he was the person, he, he was the creator, the original Bitcoin. I mean, how could he prove that? Would you know how he could prove that? Yeah, so... Uh, there, there is this original Satoshi Nakamoto wallet. So Satoshi Nakamoto is the name the creator used. And the, there is a, a Bitcoin wallet publicly associated with him. It has 1 million Bitcoins and it hasn't moved. So if, if someone were to say, I am Satoshi, you can say, I am going to uh, transfer uh, like this fraction of a Bitcoin from this wallet to the other wallet. Mm -hmm. And then he can make that transfer. And he's in that person whatever their name is, they're the only person, obviously, that has the ability to do that because they the, they're the only person that has access to that wallet, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess if you if you do that proof, you, you prove you have access to that wallet. Uh, you might not prove you are actually the creator. Maybe you stole the, the yeah. private key, but yeah. it's as close to proof that we can get. Yeah, you're, you're, that's the only way, I think, is if you have the access. But yeah, you could steal it. <laughs> whatever. When Bitcoin first came out, I remember a few friends were doing this Bitcoin mining, which obviously is in the title of your book. Is, is that how Bitcoin initially was distributed? Is sort of like this weird, quirky way to gather it? Is like just set it, set your computer I running guess, well, and, and randomly get a coin? No, what you're asking is, you know, essentially, and I know this, we could probably talk all night on this, Ethan, you know, how essentially, you know, what goes into Bitcoin mining? We hear, you, everybody's heard about Bitcoin mining, right? Uh, I, I guess what, to keep it simple, why do you have to mine it, I guess? What goes into mining it, I guess, on a very top level? Mm -hmm. So basically, mining is both the process to facilitate transactions of Bitcoin. So if I send a Bitcoin to you, how does that happen? It's because of the, the miners who are doing their work. And also, at the same time, people who mine as an incentive, they get newly created units of Bitcoin. And so the, uh, the number that of bitcoins that we get it's uh, it, it depreciates over time and it's it's a fixed number and i guess that in a nutshell is what mining is and uh uses a lot of computing power and, and that was one of the things um that i was thinking about when i was you know, preparing for this too ethan you know there's been some and and this is not a debate by any means but i'm wondering what your thoughts are on this too because the day and age we're in right now, um, obviously, we have a big push on electric, you know, electric vehicles, electric things. I mean, smaller carbon footprints, especially on things, especially vehicles, right? Uh, also, smaller carbon footprints on manufacturing. And there's lots of ways to, that we can, we're trying to reduce this footprint on the planet, right? Go green, right? Uh, and that's one of the things I hear about Bitcoin mining is that it's very CPU intensive. It's very process intensive, and it requires a lot of energy, Right. So I'm wondering if you've noticed or if you've witnessed any debates on this with people, because, I mean, I've, I've actually heard a couple of things where people are like, well, wait a minute. So we got everybody fighting over here 
about wanting to reduce our carbon footprint. We want to go electric or you know green everything, let's say, right? But over here, we got people Bitcoin mining, <laughs> and they're they're pulling, they're burning more coal than we can we can throw at them. Basically, I mean, is there any type of? I mean, it's something I've thought about. Is it something that you have ever thought about or gotten involved? I guess in a discussion with over this stuff. Uh, well, I I think constantly about this. And I, I think it's a, it's a very interesting argument if, if you get into it. And I think number one is that um, we, we haven't established that the Bitcoin mining is done burning coal. It just uses a lot of electricity and the electricity can come from any number of sources. And, and you're right about that. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, uh, but Bitcoin, uh, it does use a lot of electricity, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, But is there anything inherently wrong with uh, using a lot of electricity? Because I'm sure electric cars, they use a lot of electricity too. Yeah, you're right. And, uh, electric cars, they, they probably use more electricity than Bitcoin. But, you know, we, we accept electric, electric cars because uh, we believe that its use case, it's a very useful use case and it will help our society. And, and therefore, we, we think that that's... Uh, the amount of electricity that goes into it, we think that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good use of it. But mm. so why, why can't that all that electricity going to Bitcoin or why can't that also be a good use? And so that's a bit of a value judgment here and a bit of a subjective argument. As I read the book here, and, and I want to tell you, Once a Bitcoin Miner was a really cool book. Thanks for, thanks for sending it over to me. It was a great read. Uh, um, but the story... I and this is all events that were true that you documented and through interviews and 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 such and it really went off the track. I mean, it it seemed like the people involved, the main players involved here, it just flew off the track. Some of these people, they just went completely. It was I don't even know how to describe. It, it was just completely nuts. I think it was like a lot, lot like a movie. I think right, um, and it just I mean. Why? I guess the question I have with that is why do you why did you think it was important to tell this story about the obviously the birth of Bitcoin or your involvement with it and these people involved? Why do you think it was so important to tell this story? Uh, yeah, I, I, I well, first of all, I should say I, I didn't have any involvement in the birth of Bitcoin. No, uh, I didn't mean it like I, that. I don't want to be known as Craig, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> Sorry. I, I, yeah, I'm gonna clear that up. I didn't mean to put it out that way. Thank you. Yeah, uh, but I, I see lots of books tackling crypto uh, through uh, either a monetary policy lens or a, a computer science lens. And But I think there is another aspect to it, which is the human condition angle and which I don't see explored enough. And so that's what I try to do through the book. And I think for the uninitiated, it's probably a lot uh, easier of a way in. And it's... Um, and how do you understand something it's through a good story? And that's what I tried to do. Well, yeah. And, you know, you introduced a lot of characters. Um, and some of these people I was familiar with, which I thought was really neat. Uh, one uh, who you who you had experience with uh, was Jan. And I'm probably going to slur the pronunciation of this. Jan Serrato or Serrato. How was how, how is that pronounced? <laughs> I, I think there are many different pronunciations. I think he himself <laughs> calls it Serrato. So, so, and this is one, and this, you know, this man who was, uh, you know, at, in his, in his uh, arena was a pretty big player from what, from what I saw and how I saw things play out with him, 
you know, I'm, let me just be blunt here, and this is coming from me, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. He was clearly a narcissist. <laughs> he clearly wanted to be the center of attention all the time, and it kind of, it, it kind of made me. He had very cultish tendencies. I think he wanted to kind of get, you know, have followers, which he did. I think at one time, if wouldn't you agree? I mean, he had a lot of followers at one time, Ethan, didn't he? Yeah, and I think in a way that lots of people describe him, and also from what I witnessed, he he is a good talker. And you know, you put a mic under him, and uh, he can he can go on and on. And I, I mean that in a good way. You know, he has that gift of the gab. Oh yeah, I think watching things play out with him, it was there was just so many trait characteristics I, I've seen from Jan that I've seen from other people that for me at least throws throws off alarm bells right and I mean I want to be as complimentary to the to the gentleman as I can but at the same time everything I saw I mean for example I mean you, he would he would have one of his meetups for example right and he would go on Facebook or go on social media and tout about all these people and how, how much momentum everything has and just pumping up the movement pumping up pump it up right pump it up and it seemed like he was more or less just kind of inflating what was really happening. Like he was always making things out to be bigger than they actually were. Um, and I think that was obviously to make perception of what he was trying to sell, what he was trying to start, obviously bigger to get more followers. Am I correct? Yeah, uh, I, I guess more or less. Yeah. And he, uh, I think in my experience of him, when he says five things, probably only two of them would be true. And for example, he would say that he, uh, is one of his events it made the it made the fi financial news or something but yeah, yeah. It, when he posts a link it's it's not news he, he paid money for a press release yeah. and just li little things like that well and you mentioned in the book too like they with through his company he would he they even published their own magazine and he would write articles about himself essentially in his magazine which i which i found <laughs> oh, yeah. which I, I actually don't know who the author of that is but oh, okay all it, right am i uh, it, it definitely uh, it's i don't think it's a piece of objective journalism it definitely uh, kind of very much inflated him yeah i mean and i'm not trying to like you know go after this guy at all but i mean from what you know from what the, how the book was laid out and how the facts are laid out there was just so many characteristics that I just, again, I, that my antlers popped. I'm like, I've seen people like this before. And obviously he was trying, he, and again, cultish mentality. I want to backtrack a little bit for yeah. listeners. Um, who is he? Yeah, you know what? It, can we talk a little bit about who Jan Surratt is? What yeah. was his role? Yes, yeah, I'm kind of just going, going in with an assumption. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, Ethan, can we start a little bit about what, who, who Jan is? Yeah, absolutely. So he is someone I met in Calgary, which is uh, it's, a, it's a Canadian city in Alberta. It's basically the the center of Canada's oil industry. So think of it like uh, Canada's Texas. Mm -hmm. And um, Jan Serato, basically, he, he had a bit of a, a, a complicated past. He had uh, a few run-ins run with the law, he had suspended charges, and he had been sued quite a number of times and mostly over money. And in a lot of those cases, he never, put, he never put up a defense and people got default judgments against him. And there were instances of people having difficulty serving paperwork to him. Mm -hmm. And so um, he found Bitcoin in 2017. And I think he saw within it kind of a, a 
maybe a new beginning for himself. And he sort of, uh, in my view, and he kind of reinvented himself. Suddenly he was this Bitcoin guy and he was Bitcoin everything, you know, Bitcoin t-shirt, uh, Bitcoin hat. Yeah. And he started holding meetups. And, and you know, as we talked about just now, he's good at like talking in front of a crowd, but he doesn't really know much about crypto, uh, you know, as how his he, he actually assembled like a team, uh, lots of people around him, but the way they describe him, he doesn't seem to know uh, all of what he was talking about. And he he gathered this this thing called a whale club, which was a, a pooled investment sort of thing in Calgary. Lots of people parked their money with him. Mm-hmm. And he was telling them, uh, you know, we are, we're, we're going to collectively invest and we'll get you good returns. But that whole thing just utterly collapsed. And he is... Uh, his case is before the local securities commission now. Is it? It's still. Bef- it's still before there right now. As I know that was part of the story too. Was, I mean, he's still in litigation with them, correct? Uh, yeah. So uh, he, we're basically just awaiting a judgment, I think, because uh, the, the hearings have passed, and it's actually been quite a while. It's been almost a year, and still pending. I think about, and as I was reading Jan's story, you know, reading the, from your book. And I, you know, I, I, read, I read a lot of true crime. I watch a lot, a lot of true crime documentaries and stuff. And I see the same people of Jan's sort. And it blows my mind. I guess it's my personality, Ethan, because I, if I jaywalk, I'm freaking out like I'm going to get a ticket. <laughs> like, you know, if I, and I hear about people like Jan and all sorts of other people who will go out and start up business after business and fail and fail and you know, lose millions and millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and it just blows my mind because they just, you know, I, I guess I have a certain amount of respect and admiration for people that are willing to go out on a limb and try to do something like that. I mean, I don't think I have the guts to do that. I'll be totally honest uh, because I think I'm afraid of failure like that. I'm afraid of, you know, ruining my life because I would, I guess the difference between me and something like Jan is if I was to start a business and invest millions and millions of dollars and it failed, I think I would feel like I was really on the hook for that. And I would take responsibility for that and probably end up having to pay off a major bill the rest of my life, where I think a lot of these people just try to find ways, obviously, to get out of that. <laughs> and I guess that's where <laughs> and, and, and one of the things I did, you pointed out while you were discussing, Jan, and I think this is one of the tactics people of this sort use is they literally, yeah, well, we, they won't, if you try to serve them papers, they won't take the papers. Or, you know, if you try to sue them, well, after a while you realize, and that's one of the things you mentioned in the book also, is that, you know, obviously going through courts, it's it's a horrendous, ghastly process, right? And we all, what little I experience I have, it's enough. It's ghastly. It's horrible. Um and I think after a while, some people that want to sue somebody who have truly been wrong, not just Jan, anybody, but people of this sort, they just get tired. They just get tired and they can't deal with it anymore. They say, you know what? I give up. <laughs> I just don't want to go through this anymore. And I think, and I want you, I want to hear your thoughts on this, Ethan. Um, I, I think people of that sort, that's a weapon they use. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's uh that's a weapon lots of people use, but I, 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 well, I, I, I did put all of this to Jan and he, he never really addressed any of his previous legal cases. So 
I, uh, I I don't know like why he didn't respond to lots of lawsuits, why uh, some people had trouble serving him. And I, I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt. I, I think, I don't think he was, uh, especially in the case of the Will Club, he's not necessarily that malicious, but yeah. he, he has said before that uh, there were times when he didn't have money for food. And I, I don't think he, his, and you know, his past is a bit complicated. Yeah. And I think he saw he saw something within Bitcoin, and I think hunger is a is a pretty big driver. Yeah, and again, I'm tr- I'm trying not to throw daggers at the guy. I'm really not. But there was just so many things I saw in 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 his personality in the book that I'm like, I know this kind of person. <laughs> I've met people like this before. Um, but you know, interesting nonetheless. I, I really think he was trying to start a movement. I mean, you know, maybe he did have. Maybe you're right. He may have had some good intentions with this too. Uh, if it was successful, it, it's successful. Uh, but I don't think it was very successful for him. Obviously, <laughs> now there's another person too, and uh, and we can maybe, if you don't mind, I'd like to just maybe talk a little bit of a background of this gentleman too. It's Gerald Cotton, which I've read a, a couple of things on this gentleman. And I've seen some documentaries on Gerald Cotton. Can we talk a little bit about Gerald for a second? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I've i only ever had one meeting with him. Mm-hmm. I, I, I met him in 2014. And this was back when, this was pretty early days. And back then, Quadriga CX, uh, the, the exchange he started, and Gerald Cotton, he, uh, he eventually was reported dead in India and his exchange yeah. Uh, on which people could buy and sell crypto, it uh, would just utterly collapse. And so back when I met him, um, Quadriga was still a big deal. And I think anyone involved in crypto, they would have an exchange on it because back then, and I guess when Quadriga first started, it's not that easy to buy and sell Bitcoin. Uh, and it was one of the few places in Canada where you can do uh, do that with Canadian dollars. And he actually gave me quite a good impression and I ended up using his platform. But eventually, years later, I would find out he died. And I, I, I'm one of the Quadriga claimants. I, I had at the time 13 ethers, which were worth about $2,000 and which are now worth, I think, uh, well, yeah, uh, double digit thousands. Wow. Wow. I guess the goofy question to ask, and I know this is something that's bounced around, and I apologize about the conspiracy theory, but there was talk that Gerald faked his own death. Um, I don't know what to think about this myself, but I, do you think that it holds any water whatsoever, Ethan? Uh huh. So I will. I will uh, tell both sides of that story. So cool. Um, what is interesting is that the the place where he died in India, it's it's known for being a place where you can easily get a death certificate. Mm-hmm. And he also left rather detailed instructions in his will. He, uh, he partitioned out a specific amount of money for his two dogs. So if you, if you, if you're that detailed in your will, how come you don't leave instructions for, for running your platform? How come you don't leave your passwords? So, yeah. And, also, um, the the FBI and the, and Canada's federal police they were going around asking witnesses, uh, "Do you think he's still alive?" And they said that they said that was an open question. So that that was two years ago. So I guess that shows at the very least that the authorities had that, that doubts as well. 
Did I read? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, Ethan, but I just thought about this too. In the book, wasn't there? Uh, I, I don't. I don't remember that going anywhere. Didn't they talk about zooming his body? Yes. Yes. So, uh, well, exhuming his grave and uh, to yeah. see if that is actually his body, and that was a request by the. Um, I guess the lawyer representing the claimant. So technically that's a law firm that represents me as well, but mm -hmm. um, I guess that's a, that's a request that came from lots of the claimants and the, the RCMP never really responded to that. Uh, so the, the grave was not exhumed. And okay. so, yeah, uh, I, I guess the, it's, it's probably not definitively settled, but at the same time, um, his widow did write a book. And the it's not actually written by her. There's, a, there's like a ghostwriter who's quite a uh, qu like quite a well-respected journalist. So I, if if the guy didn't didn't die, I, I don't think the journalist will put his name there like that. So okay. I guess that that lends credence to the he, he did die uh, camp, but I don't know for certain. Uh, that is the big point, though, of this. And you're right. I found that humorous in the book that he did leave in his will uh, detailed instructions on how to take take. It was two chihuahuas, I think he had two chihuahuas, his two dogs. But yeah, there was no instructions there. I think didn't he, didn't his wife have? She recovered some funds, I guess, from the platform, but not all. Am I correct? Uh, no, no. I she, well, she herself, she didn't. Uh, she didn't recover anything, but okay. she inherited like nine million from uh, from, from her, her her late from. Maybe I shouldn't be using the word late since there's doubt, but uh, <laughs> from, from Gerald Cotton, yeah. she inherited nine million, and eventually the I think the when the company entered bankruptcy, the court was able to recover. Uh, I think maybe a few million dollars, but okay. uh, maybe even double digit millions. But you know, yeah. it's a small fraction of what was lost. That's probably what I was thinking of. I uh, probably crossed a wire there that she, yeah, she didn't hear at 9 million. So I guess like, you know, thinking about this, just thinking, you know, stream of consciousness here, Ethan. So you have a platform like that with all this Bitcoin out there, all the, all this money, right. That's just dead. It's, is it just still kind of floating out there in the ether? Like, I guess like an old geo cities website from like the nineties, the I guess <laughs> we have all these garbage websites kind of floating around in the ether. I mean, what is something like that? Is it, does it just sit there? Lock, where everybody's locked out of it, no one has access to it, right? So uh, does it just kind of sit there until time ends? I mean, what what happens to this, do you think? <laughs> uh, well, you, you have to separate the website from the, the wallet holding the coins. So the website, uh, people had access to that. That was shut down. But the the wallet, so that's what you call a cold wallet. So it's not uh, – so a wallet is uh, basically what you use to hold crypto, and that's – not a wallet that's connected to the internet and we don't know what happened to it wow hmm. i mean we 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 know that it can't be accessed by by the by the company or the widow but mm -hmm. yeah i i don't think we know much beyond that wow so in the book and i know this this was a big part of the book uh you and a hand well eight other people i think uh Went to and I got this is a mouthful. Democrat that went went to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea cryptocurrency conference. Um, 
Now, there's a whole story in that. I want people to buy the book and and, and read this because it's a wild story. Uh, <laughs> but I, I I guess there was a, I think Griffith. I'm trying to remember names here. I should have wrote it down. Uh, the gentleman named Griffith. He was the one. He was actually contacted by the FBI. He was actually detained by the FBI. Uh, and I, w- I do want to go into this a little bit because he wasn't even supposed to be there in the first place. Am I correct? Yeah, so his name is Virgil Griffith, and he's pretty high up in Ethereum at the time, at the uh, Ethereum Foundation. Mm-hmm. And um, he, because he's an American, and Americans can't go to North Korea, they are, I think that's the only nationality in the world with that condition. And so basically before going to the conference, he, he sought out the State Department to seek permission to go, and they said, you can't go, and he went anyway. You know, I thought about that. How, you know, I'm probably asking ridiculous questions now. How do you even get on a plane to go? <laughs> if you're being told, I, I mean, I thought the the long arm of the long arm of the law was that long. They okay, look, you can't go to North Korea. You're an American. You're not allowed to go there. And somehow he just gets on a plane and goes anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, I guess. Uh... As an American, as, as any citizen of any country, I think most countries, you have the right to come and go. Mm-hmm. And that, there are no direct flights between the U.S. and North Korea. And he was actually living in Singapore at the time. And oh. to go to North Korea, you, you, only, you can only go like either from China or from Russia. So, yeah, okay. I guess they... Uh, they couldn't really stop him. Yeah, yeah, the the long arm of the law was not that long then. I mean, yeah, he was on the other side of the world, essentially. They can't monitor him, so that's how he was able to go. Now, there at that conference, um, he discussed cryptocurrency in North Korea. And I think that's what the big problem was, was that he discussed this with them, how to get around sanctions. That was more or less why, I, why he was explaining this to them, so they could get around any type of sanctions to push money out, Correct. Yes, uh, that's uh, that's that's what what he's accused of, mm-hmm. and I, he he has indeed pleaded guilty to that. Yeah, he he admitted everything. I think he he went. As a matter of fact, if I remember the book correctly, said I mean what you said, or what was reported was that he pretty much just talked. I mean he didn't he didn't call a lawyer. He just talked. Am I correct on that? Yeah. So uh, even when we were in North Korea, he was. He, he was telling us all of this that, you know, they told him not to go and he went anyway. Mm-hmm. And he told us after he got back from North Korea, he's going to meet with the State Department officials to tell them about the trip. And I think in his mind, perhaps he was doing his country a favor and he didn't think it was a big deal. You know, maybe he'll get a fine. And that, that was kind of his mentality. Mm-hmm. And, but, and, and, uh, According to, if you read um, the, the legal documents, what was filed to court, he, and I don't think they, they gave the, the FBI really uh, showed their cards much. Mm-hmm. And for, for a long time, he believed that everything was okay. And when he realized the gravity of the situation, it was already too late. Oh, my goodness. Now, you were never contacted. Am I correct? I mean, to this day. By the um, FBI, I say. I mean, by the FBI. No, I was not, and I think I wasn't the only one to to not have been contacted. Uh, I think uh, about maybe more than half of the people were never contacted, and I I, I don't know why, but um, I think firstly Virgil Griffith he was the he was the only American there, and also 
most of us we were we were going there not as speakers but as uh, as just passive participants and so a, a funny thing that happened in North Korea was that when we got there they told us that you guys are in fact not the participants you are supposed to be like these big deal foreign speakers to present mm-hmm. to the North Koreans and while Virgil I think when he went there he he knew he was going to be a presenter because that's that was the arrangement for him and it was a bit short in ethereum the rest of us we were not like that and so and I didn't even end up speaking at the conference when they asked me to speak I eventually declined yeah you said and that so, yeah so that, that I guess that's the difference between the rest of the conference participants and and Virgil but I guess the question I I mean you did state that they when you got there they said okay this is what we want to present you guys as I guess the question I have to ask you is why did you guys, if they only really wanted to have Virgil, well, you were obviously asked to speak too, right? But I mean, I guess the question is why did they bring you guys there in the first place? It, was it just to have a, a show of people there? Like, here's what we have, or I mean, what were some reasons for that? Oh, um, so I I don't know definitively the reason, but what mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it is, it's like this dog and pony show, you know, <laughs> like, uh, um, and I, I write this in the book. You have read it uh, in, in China. They they have this thing called uh, rent a white person. You know, when you have a whole conference and you maybe 10, that. 20 years, yeah. 10, 20 years ago, they, they would do that. They would just hire a bunch of random white guys and yep. uh, just have them at the conference. It a- adds prestige, whatever. And it's, I feel it's kind of the, the same thing there because the conference, it was organized by the cultural people of the, of the North Korean government. It was not their tech people. Okay. And yeah, uh, it was entirely void of substance, you know, uh, what, what Virgil, and so this is why this thing is so bizarre to me is what Virgil said at the conference. It was basically just publicly available information. Like there, there was nothing that there was secret or proprietary. Everything could, could have been found on Wikipedia. You mentioned that, that you, I think you said that you came from that conference going okay i didn't really learn anything here <laughs> but yet some dude like the fbi is like grilling this guy like you guys learn nothing yeah. no <laughs> we're gonna talk to you yeah <laughs> i guess you know and obviously there's a lot uh in the book we're just scraping the surface here uh, once a once a bitcoin miner uh i do want to ask you though ethan i mean as far as i mean you're still obviously you still have bitcoin am i correct you still have you still are involved with cryptocurrency Oh yeah, that's correct. I guess it depends on how you how you define being involved. I I don't have a mining facility anymore, but I, I do own Bitcoin. I do own other crypto, and yeah, I still write about the subject as well. I guess the the main question, and I I hate to ask you this because I'm sure it's a pretty common one, but I mean, the future of this thing. I mean, do you think that because I mean, there's people that they're putting their money on no pun intended. They're putting their money on on Bitcoin as as the future of our currency. Like we're going to do away with the well, with the contemporary banking systems we have now. The vision, obviously, that we've already explained is we're going to have the blockchain out there as opposed to a banking system will be on the blockchain and we'll exchange money like that. Do you do you believe in your heart that that's where we're going to go? I mean, maybe even in our lifetimes. Oh, absolutely not. And but I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. But I'm still very bullish on Bitcoin and crypto. I, I just don't think the the current monetary system is going to be just supplanted like that. I, I think Bitcoin will uh, exist uh, alongside it. 
Okay. So, I mean, and maybe someday it'll just be a gradual shit switch over. Go ahead, Amber. Um, Ethan, what would be the advantages to Bitcoin versus just regular currency that we use to someone out there that just wants to get involved and I don't know, either invest in it or whatever, but what, what advantages does this have? Uh-huh. Uh, well, uh, I, I guess if you were to compare it to, to regular currency for, for maybe an, uh, an everyday person, probably not that many uh, advantages. But um, for other use cases, for example, Bitcoin is something that cannot be seized. It can't be frozen. And I mean, if you steal someone's uh, private key, which is the equivalent of a password, you steal their Bitcoin. But if you guard your your private key, well, it's something that, that can't be seized, you know. Okay. And that, I guess... That's uh, that's like the, the the main benefit of it, and uh, with at the risk of being too long winded, I, I actually have the story. So there's a let's hear it. There's a there's a young lady in Afghanistan. So this is a true story that I've heard that there, there was a time when the the Taliban were were taking over recently, and all the refugees were fleeing, and. A lot of the refugees who, who run away from Afghanistan, they, they don't get to take their money with them because the, the, the system there is, is pretty bad and and it's also very unstable. So they, they leave penniless uh, more often than not. But there was this young lady who, who had Bitcoin and she when she left Afghanistan, it was quite a perilous journey uh, and she, she had to cross Iran and Turkey. But when she reached Germany and her ship actually sank in the Mediterranean before that. But so she memorized her, her passphrase. So essentially she was able to just carry two Bitcoins in her head. Wow. And so she used that to fund a new life in Germany. So yeah, it's, I guess uh, at the heart of it, it's a sort of type of money. That's well, what you would call like anti-fragile that, mm-hmm. that basically endures regardless of what happens around it. Yeah, and that's kind of amazing when you look at it that way. Well, it's more mobile, it seems. Like in that case, it seemed like it was a very mobile device to have. And to, secure and safe. Yeah. And yeah. Something to take with you and actually have, you know, be able to yeah. build something out. Speaking of take with you, I, I really want to ask Ethan, like the last question I want to ask. Yeah. I really want to ask your opinion on NFTs. With, yeah, but that's the hot thing right now. I guess, we have NFTs. been talking about this. Yeah, a lot like, around the house, yeah. Like how, I know in the book you mentioned, like this one guy says, uh, if you talk about Bitcoin to people, you get the Bitcoin stare. I think you get the, <laughs> I think you get the NFT stare when you talk about that to people. And I know with, especially within the art community and art world, that NFTs have been a real hot thing. And then in general, you know, selling a, selling a meme. Uh, oh, yeah, a picture, a GIF. Yeah, just, just anything. And yeah. people are just spending tons of money. But what are your thoughts on NFTs? And do you see them being um, for like a, a, another sustainable way or another sustainable investment? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Although I, I do think that the market might be quite frothy right now. Uh. And so, you know, I, I think lots of NFTs, perhaps they're, over, they're overvalued. But as uh, if you think of the core idea, I, I, I'm very much a believer. And I will, uh, I'll actually tell you the, another story. Yes. So this is a story from Vitalik Buterin, the main creator of Ethereum. And he actually said this as a joke. 
but it does illustrate, uh, I guess, the, the use case of NFTs. So he was a big gamer. He probably still is. And he played World of Warcraft and he put a lot of effort into leveling up his character to be able to cast a spell to do lots of damage. But one day, Blizzard, the, the company that ran the game, just quite arbitrarily, in his view at least, uh, just took away a lot of the damage component from his spell. And he was very pissed off that day. And uh, he, he wrote in his story, I cried myself to sleep. <laughs> and so he, he said that as a joke as to why he created Ethereum. But basically, uh, Ethereum, which is uh, the platform, the, the main platform on which the NFTs run. Yes. It's, they, they want to do uh, what Bitcoin did for money. They want to do for the internet. And so uh, a virtual object could be your spell, but could be like a sword in the game. But you don't really own it. Uh, the, the, the company that makes the game owns it and you have no rights in the game and you put a lot of effort into leveling up your character. Could be like people putting in effort to, to get, a, get a diploma or get a driver's license. But in the real world, uh, the government can't take that away from you, at least uh, for most of us because we have rights and due process. But mm -hmm. in the virtual world, uh, you don't own your stuff. And NFTs, that they're a way for you to own your stuff in a virtual world. And we have some use cases and it's, it's very new, but I think we'll have more, I guess, uh, more useful use cases in the future. The things where it works at, uh, uh, a musician who I really like, uh, Mike Burkett, who's also known as Fat Mike from a punk band called No Effects in California, uh, he started making NFTs. The guy, he explained in a video, he said, I'm going to start making NFTs. He's like, I have hundreds of songs, acoustic versions of songs that I put on my albums. He's like, I write all these songs on my bed in my bedroom, and then we, the band takes them and we go and record them. He's like, so I have all these alternate recordings of these songs. He's like, so I'm just going to take these and make some of these NFTs. I think that's a, that right there is a really clear cut, and I think a really cool thing with NFTs is that's something you know authentic and original, and you know not reproducible, obviously. That you're getting straight from the artist. I think that's way more clear cut and makes the most sense for an NFT. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I, I think there as well, you you might run into issues. For example, does the does the recording studio own uh, all the artist songs? Good point. Do, do you have the right to make your NFT or or, you know, would, would the, what if the songwriter makes an, another NFT? And so whose is the legitimate one now? That's the problem. Well, to, to solve half of that problem, the gentleman I'm talking about, he owns the recording studio and owns the record label. <laughs> so that problem's solved there with that. But you're right. What if the artist makes another NFT? I mean, a, a duplicate NFT? Well, that, depo that, deplete, that, that defeats the whole purpose of what then an NFT not is. That's not fungible. <laughs> yeah, that defeats the whole purpose of it. But... I mean, you're right. I mean, which one's the original one? So, yeah, I guess there's a lot of use cases that we're talking about here for the future of this thing. But I find it exciting, though. I think it's 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 something down the road as far as artists are concerned, digital artists especially, people that are going into this, you know, I wouldn't call it a very new uh, frontier. It's been out there for decades now, but I think it's new for some people. I think it's a cool new thing for people to look at. Uh, Ethan, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us tonight about this. Um 
we're we're layman's to this thing, and I appreciate you explaining a couple things to us on this, along with talking about the book because I found the book. And again, I people out there once a Bitcoin miner. It's a fantastic book. It reads like fiction. It reads great. It reads really good. It isn't though. It's it's it, this is all this stuff really happening. It's it's a lot of crazy stuff that happened. But again, Ethan, I want to thank you so much for doing this, and we'd love to have you back down the road. Oh yeah, thank you, thank you for having me. And I should add a little correction that when when we talked about the the I guess the the songwriter and the singer uh, when they each make an NFT, uh, they're they're actually non fungible. So you can see like which is the NFT made by whom. So that actually is, they are they will be different. Ah, You're right because yep. it'll be a different token. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That makes sense. We'll figure it out, Ethan. <laughs> we'll figure we, it we out still have to, We still have to work <laughs> on this stuff. <laughs> thank you again, Ethan. We appreciate the time. Alright, cool. It's an absolute pleasure. Ghostly talk. <laughs>